Welcome to this extended version of the Orthodox Ethos Podcast. Today's lecture will be aimed at helping all of those seeking to go deeper and get well-established in the life of the Church, especially new converts. Thank you for joining us, and God bless you. Good evening. God bless. Christ has ascended. I hope you're well. I hope you are had a good week so far. And we're very glad to have you with us tonight. We're going to be talking about going deeper, getting well established in the spiritual life for all, but especially for those who are new and have yet to be introduced uh, to the spiritual life. They're either catechumens, they're recent converts, maybe even people here tonight who are about to be catechumens, others who are orthodox for many, many years, but have never been really introduced to the deeper things of the spiritual life. We're going to introduce you. This is not going to go very deep because we're dealing with those who are uh, still, as most of us, uh, beginners. I remember one time this came to mind. I was talking to... Father Stephanos Anastopoulos, uh, you might have heard of him. He is the spiritual son of Elder Ephraim. This would have been almost 15 years ago, and we were talking about the state of things in the church, and he said, look, if we're honest, most of us are catechumens. We're literally on the level of the catechumens of once upon a time in the church. So let's all sit at the feet of the Holy Fathers continuously with extreme humility. And so tonight, everybody is involved, is invited, and it's applicable to all. And it's all good for us to, even if we've heard it, to hear it again and to uh, therefore make uh, the, the necessary steps to go deeper. So let's, uh, let's say our prayers as usual, and we'll come right back and uh, jump into the lecture tonight on uh, Guide for Converts. Going deeper, getting well established. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit, amen. Illumine our hearts, O Master, who lovest mankind with the pure light of the divine knowledge. Open the eyes of our mind to the understanding of the gospel teaching. Plant also fear of thy blessed commandments to trample down all kind of desires. We may enter upon a spiritual manner of living, both thinking and doing such things as are well pleasing unto thee. For thou art the illumination of our souls and bodies of Christ our God. Under thee we ascribe glory, together with thy Father, who is from everlasting, the holy good and life-creating spirit, both now and ever and unto ages of ages. Amen. Tu salisanadixas, kata pemsas aftistop nevmato aion ke diafton, tinikumenisai ginevsas filantrope. Doxa, si. 
Amen. All right. Very good. Glory to God. Glory to God. Everybody seems to have been established, right? We're all good to go. You can hear me. Let's jump into the text. First of all, uh, let me go back to the first page here. Guide for converts, how to go deeper, get well-established is what I'm calling this tonight. And it's going to be practical. It's going to be a little spiritual, theological. It's going to point us to go deeper. I'm going to read from you a very important and wonderful text that we hope to translate um, in the near future and have the full thing available to you. I'm going to, leave it. I'm going to give you a little bit of what we want, where we want to end, right? Because it's not enough to say, okay, here you are. Watch out for these pitfalls. That's what we'll do. We'll do a little bit of that. But I also want you to say, okay, wh- where am I going exactly? Okay, I want to go where? How do I want to get there? So I want you to, I want you not just to walk away tonight and say, okay, he gave me some practical tips. But I want you to know where you need to go and what's the aim. And then I think that'll put everything else in perspective. I'm not going to tell you a whole lot about the end game, but I'm going to give you a, I'm going to read from you two pages of this phenomenal text by my, uh, my own guide and professor of dogmatic theology, who was also and is also a very spiritual man connected to the saints of our day. And he gives us uh, the presuppositions for the spiritual life. The presuppositions for the spiritual life is the name of the article. Uh, his name is Dimitris, Dimitrios Chelengiris, and this is the book in Greek. It's called The Presuppositions and Criteria of... Uh, orthodox theology uh, without delusion or doing or being an orthodox theologian without being falling into delusion. It's a, not, it doesn't translate very well, but it sounds good in, in Greek. And uh, Professor Chelengidis uh, was um, one of the reasons I was drawn to him is because he was teaching from not just the books, but from his experience at the sitting at the feet of St. Paisios, uh, St. Ephraim Katonakia, uh, and um, others on Mount Athos, who are not very, as well known. Uh, but he was frequenting Athos throughout his whole life, and that really doesn't inform him in his teaching. But he was very well versed, especially in St. Gregory Palamas and the and the. Uh, uh, Cappadocian Fathers, Saint Gr- and St. Gregory the Theologian, uh, and St. Basil the Great. So it is uh, a lot of work on Western theology as well. He's got two books that I would love to see translated someday. One is on Lutheran soteriology, and the other is on Anselm and the, the- and the uh, teachings of Anselm on justification, uh, which were important uh, documents in the Middle Ages in the West. Uh, so, but tonight we're going to hear f- from him on when I get there in the presentation on the spiritual life and the presupposition of the spiritual life. And some of it's going to be very challenging to you, and some of it's going to be very inspiring. So, that's how usually it is. <laughs> if it's not challenging, it's probably not very inspiring. All right. So, the first thing we're going to do is sit at the feet of Father Sarah from Rose, who has given us, you may be well versed in this, so I'm not going to spend a whole lot of time on it, but. Uh, he's given us some basics about the problems he saw in the 1970s with converts at that time. They're, they're applicable today, and I'll elaborate a bit uh, on those uh, 
and maybe try to apply them to our day as well. And we're going to go and start with Father Seraphim, sit at his feet, talk about what he had to say in his day uh, regarding the convert-itis, the convert and his problems. Uh, so first and foremost, we need we should say that everyone is ultimately a convert, even if they grow up in the faith. Uh, and this is very important for all of those here tonight who who were baptized as babies or young children. Uh, it's important to understand that the presupposition for that baptism and that initiation at such a young age was that you will be thoroughly catechized. And catechism, as we've said many times here, is not learning about Christ, but being purified and being initiated and going deeper in the spiritual life and, and believing and trusting on your own, right? So you've been given this great gift as children. You grew up in the faith. You probably took it for granted, as most do. And then you had you came at some point to your senses and you said, wait a minute, what do we have here? Let's go deeper and examine what does it mean to be an Orthodox Christian? And in that, in that sense, you're a convert as well. You have to, every human being has to say yes, like the mother of God. Uh, and you'll see tonight when we get to that point uh, in, the, in the examination that that is an essential part of, uh, uh, of going deeper and getting well-established in the spiritual life. It's, it, it's, it's a presupposition for the spiritual life. So, in, in that, that is um, the ultimate conversion, right? So there are people who were never Orthodox. They, they're, they're coming, they're never, never part of the life of the church, this life of the, the, the uh, spiritual life of the church. And now they're coming at a, at a, at a, and adopting it and embracing it at a, at a older age. Uh, but they still have to arrive at the point where they're not just saying yes to the truth or yes to initiation but in the inner man, in the inner man, they're saying yes, and not just once, but continually. They're standing, and their stance, their whole stance is a yes. Their whole life is a constant yes to God, uh, and and that uh, that in that is the fulfillment of the first commandment: to love your God with all your heart, soul, and mind, right? And not just your mind, or not just your strength, not just your Heart, but the whole man, all the time, every day, has is oriented toward Christ, and that's a continual yes. And so, therefore, there's no one here tonight who's not in need of the uh, corrections that and the and the teachings we're going to hear tonight. In this particular offering of Father Seraphim, he's, he has in particular the in mind those people who are coming now, and we're talking about certain pitfalls. For the most part, he calls them obstacles in the Orthodox mission today. Father Damascene called them pitfalls, which I think is legitimate. So one of the first pitfalls that they uh, the, the, the convert has is he's coming from the world where everybody, uh, most people outside of the church, they're trusting themselves, first and foremost, first and last, first and continually, right? And they're because... That is the number one problem, isn't it? That, And that's what we see in the gospel continually. What's the key that opens up communion with God? It's trust in God. So therefore, you can't trust yourself. But that's what we're taught to do. We're raised in an environment which has complete trust, first and foremost, only in ourselves. Really, maybe our mother and father, but eventually uh, we're going to see all kinds of sides of the people around us that are ugly, we're going to see their sins. We're going to we're going to see things that are, are fallen. 
maybe we grew up in a household where there was a lot of that going on. And so it's very hard to trust. And the whole, the whole process of communion presupposes that implicit trust in God, right? So you have to get, you have to reorient who you trust and you have to distrust yourself and trust Christ. So it's a total reorientation for the egotist. All right, so this is a major problem. People come in and they're coming from a Protestant environment where, hey, I got my Bible, I've got my salvation, I, it's, a, it's right before me, I will interpret, I will read, I will understand, I will interpret, God will illumine me, and that's it, right? I don't need uh, the Holy Fathers of the Church, I don't even know who they are. Uh, I really don't even need the, I mean, the pastor will help me, but he's kind of in the same boat as I am. He's going to figure it out too. Uh, we're, we're, we're appealing to some Maybe if we're more high church or whatever, we're appealing to some tradition or some group of interpreters. But really, they're not seen as uh, on the, the caliber of the of the apostles, right? I mean, the apostles are, that's it, like the apostles and everybody else. No, actually, in the church, the apostles continue and the, and the gifts of the Holy Spirit continue. And we have those in every age. We have the apostles in every age, actually. This is the great uh, and amazing work of God in every age that he's bringing about great sanctity, theosis, in, in the lives of men in every generation. So the remedy, according to Father Zephyr Rose, is sober distrust of oneself, taking counsel of others, wiser guidance from the Holy Fathers. Seems pretty straightforward, right? Run to the Holy Fathers, run to a spiritual father. We'll talk about that tonight and run to uh, or run away from your own self and your and self-trust. So uh, that requires a little bit of self-knowledge as well. If you have a big idea of yourself, you might think that uh, you don't need a lot of counsel or you figured it out or, you hey, you read the fathers, you know the fathers better than anybody. You encounter these kind of people on, online for sure. And so they're, they're, people have to come to a certain, a certain degree, a basic degree of self-knowledge and, you know, one of the key things that in the, you're going to hear me say again at the end tonight is, have you stood in your prayer corner and begged God for these gifts, for these this enlightenment, for this stability, for this patience, for this self-knowledge? Because if you are not, it's if, if every one of us is not every day, even morning and evening and throughout the day, throughout the day in our noose, but in front of our icon corners morning and evening, not just saying the rote prayers, I mean, they're very important prayers, but I, it's not enough like to stand and say, okay, recite the prayer. Okay, I've done my duty. That's, a, that's religion. That's not life, right? So you've got to stand there and you've got to learn the prayers, of course. that's you, Part of praying is to acquire the way of prayer, right? The way the fathers pray. So we pray the prayers of the fathers, the saints, so that we can learn how to pray and how to stand and how to, how to understand ourselves before God. But also we need to say in the depths of our heart and our mind, uh, particular petitions for the particular needs we have right now. It illumine my mind how to deal with this temptation, how to deal with this person, how to love my neighbor, help me to have self-knowledge, help me to see myself, right? And little tiny prayers. We don't need the big prayers. Little tiny prayers. Enlighten my darkness. Purify me whom defiled. These, these kind of tiny little prayers that say, you are the enlightened one, I am the darkened one. You are the pure one, I am the impure one. You are the humble one, I am the proud one. That's essential. And essentially, that's what the prayers of the fathers say again and again. Like, that's the stance that we have. So, 
Uh, it's very important if you're going to acquire sober distrust of one of oneself, you have to pray the prayers the church has given us and 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 stand before God in that same vein, right? That same stance. Another problem that is very much associated because we've been trained to trust not only ourselves, but who do we trust in community? Well, the experts. We trust the academic the, uh, professors of theology or professors of medicine or whatever it might be. They, the ones who are, you know, trained and, and we must uh, essentially bow down before, uh, because if you don't have that, I mean, I was just blown away. I was listening to a podcast of two priests uh, earlier today, and they were saying essentially that the big problem is that everybody's an expert today. And what we need is we need more experts in the church. We've got to give away uh, and bow down before like a, magisterium of sorts in the church and we have to have imprimatur from the bishops and things like that. I mean, it sounded a lot like papism to me and, and not, not saying that they're, they're not pointing out a problem. They are pointing out a problem. The problem is this kind of one extreme, right? Which is this individualism, this egotism uh, that is bred in this society. And unfortunately, Protestantism really does not cure it much at all. It doesn't how to cure it. So, or it even adds to it. So there is a serious, serious problem, but the answer is not to, uh, like kind of authoritarianism, like everybody bow before X. That's not the answer because that kind of author demanding of authority over people is exactly what the Lord said. Don't be like that. That's that's not the authority in the church. The authority in the church is the kind of authority you see in Christ, which what people ran to him and said, you have the words of eternal life. The people who have the words of eternal life that are like Christ are the authority in the church. We'll talk about that probably not a lot tonight, but another time, very important topic. We're translating a couple of interviews we did in Greece on this very topic, very important. But here he's talking, Father Seraphim says, there's an academic approach, an over-intellectual, uninvolved, uncommitted, abstract, unreal, right? There's a huge problem today among converts. They're, they teach orthodox, treat orthodoxy as an ideology to master, as, as a theological stance or school to become well informed with. And they, there's some really sick examples online where they spend all their day. And I would agree anybody who criticizes this, I would say is, 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 is at least partially right now, how we, how we deal with it is another issue usually and not very successful, but it's a problem that they don't enter into the arena uh, against the passions. They don't enter into the struggle for virtue. They don't enter into the, uh, submission and obedience, which are essential if we're going to have true divine illumination and not simply acquire a lot of knowledge about something, right? So this, this worldly academic approach, which is a rationalistic sickness that we get from the world, we bring it in, we say the church needs to work like the world and the rationalists, the ones who've perfected the rational knowledge, they've acquired it, they've read, they've, they've, they've become very well versed. Uh, those are the those are the the authorities in the church, and I'm going to be like that. I'm going to acquire authority with acquiring a lot of knowledge about something. You know, if that's what I think or you think, we're in delusion. That's not the kind of authority and not the kind of knowledge and not the kind of experience that God calls us to. He calls us to epignosis, that is experiential knowledge. That means prayer. That means purification through prayer and illumination by the presence of God. That's the only truly enlightened stance. And so the other stance 
is filled with pride and usually could even be filled with heresy eventually because that's the kind of person that becomes a heretic is the proud one who thinks he knows it all. And he's approaching it very rationalistically, and he thinks that within that realm, he's going to achieve uh, authority and knowledge. Usually those two go, those go together. So uh, we have to be on guard. If we've read our way into the church, we've, we've come through, you know, debates or something, we've got to be on guard against the over-intellectualism and thinking that that's the that's the bread and butter of the of the faith. It's not actually. Look, it's 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 supportive. It's protective, perhaps they can serve it. Like my professor Jalen Gies would say, academic theologians can serve the church by pointing the faithful to the saints. That's the role of the academic theologian, not to stand as an authority, not to essentially have the ear of the bishop and guide the bishop, which is a lot of what academic theology tries to do. Like we're going to, we're going to do our uh, research. We're going to produce our papers and we're going to guide the bishops, how they ought to walk. Cause we know best judging from, you know, the books we've read and written uh, at the, you know, the bishops are nice. They're administrators, you know, they, they're they're They have the authority, you know, blah, blah, blah. And they kind of play lip service, but really the, there's academic theologians who think they know everything. And I've met them and I'm not talking about anybody that you probably know because I I was not in America for 20 years, but they they exist and they are really behind the scenes trying. I mean, they don't they understand they don't have the legalistic authority, right? They can't like make it happen fiat, but they really believe they have the academic and even maybe the moral authority to kind of come in and tell us what we need to be. Like they understand the Christian life very well, uh, rationalistically, academically, and they're going to come and tell us. Uh, what we need to do, even though they might not be doing that at all, because, well, they've grasped it intellectually. There's there's little institutes here and there. They're constantly putting out papers and projects and conferences they're attending. And some of it might be very well, I'm sure it's very well intended, and they might be even be profitable, depending on what they're talking about. But it, that is not the authority in the church. And that's that approach is not the, the approach that's going to lead us to Extreme humility. All right. So number that's A and B. Let's go to C uh, in this uh, short list that Father Seraphim jotted down once upon a time in his little cell on the side of the mountain there. Not keeping the secret of the kingdom. Gossip. Publicity. Uh, overemphasis on outward side of mission. Success. Danger of creating empty shell. Form of mission without substance. The remedy, concentrate on spiritual life, keep out of limelight, stay uninvolved from dispassionate uh, passionate disputes. Now, I want to talk about the first thing because I think that might be something new to some of you. What is this not keeping the secret of the kingdom? Now, as, as much as I can understand what he means, and, you know, of course, I, I would love to sit there and say, Father Seraphim, can you unpack that for us? My mind goes toward that that interesting distinction in the in the ancient church in the during the time of the persecutions the first 300 years uh, there was definitely this idea of the secrets of the church the gospel is of the church in the church for the church Tertullian famously said to the heretics it doesn't belong to you uh, you have no say of what it means you you have no experience of what of, of what it's talking about. So it doesn't belong to you. It's a, it's a foreign book for anybody outside the church. That kind of understanding, there's an inner life of the church, which is unknown. It's actually impen impenetrable for the non-initiated. That is the, is the 
idea here and that's that's behind exactly uh, the same thing that's behind my opposition to seeing at least the second half of the divine liturgy. I mean, we've got to at least stay there. And I would I would say if we did that, that would be a great achievement. The second half, the second half of the divine liturgy, the faith, liturgy of the faithful should not be on any divine. It should not be online. It should not be shared. It should that that's what we're talking about here. This is the secret of the inner life of the church. It presupposes initiation. Therefore, it's again like the gospel itself. It's off limits to the non-initiated. And when we expose it, when we throw pearls before swine, as the Lord said. We put that online, we share it, we talk about it, we invite people to come and stay the whole Divine Liturgy. And then we have, of course, Andidron for them at the end. Here is a nice, you know, we make Andidron into like a, a, a hospi- issue of hospitality, and it loses its meaning that way. We give it out to anyone and everyone. That's not the point of Andidron. It's for the faithful, for those who didn't commune for whatever reason, because they were under some kind of epitemial, uh, that is kind of some kind of canon, or whatever. You know, they're just not prepared. But... That's for the faith. So then that we have a distortion because that's not meant for the non-initiated. It's not meant for the, 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 the inquirer to be in that part of the divine liturgy. There is an inner life that's not meant for those outside. And so we have this, I mean, we see this on steroids today, what Father Sarah was talking about. This idea and this, 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 this crazy activism, we must, you know, put orthodoxy out there and we must like convince people we must. And, there, and what we end up doing is cheapening it. We end up, you know, we're very well motivated. We want people, all, everybody in the world to become more like, but we, we essentially cheapen it. We essentially undermine its, its uniqueness and, and, and because we, we don't understand, we don't recognize the presuppositions that exist for those to understand and, 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 and to hold it in high esteem, Right. It's. I think you understand what I'm talking about, but we could talk about examples from our life. Um, you know, if you take a small child or a young boy and you, the mother and father sits down and talks about all the things of the house. I, and I think this has happened more often than it should, including in all of our families. I'm sure we do this because we, we just feel comfortable. We end up talking about all kinds of things in front of the children. But in fact, we do damage to the children when we do that because they're not able, they're not, it's not their responsibility, the things of the mother and father, how we're going to run things, how we're going to do things, when we're going to go, when we're going to come back, what a variety of issues, right? So we ourselves don't live with a lot of sense of the boundaries in our own family, in our own life, right? And then we go to the church and we think, well, it's all open on the internet anyway, so there's no real inner life. And so we just expose everything all of it in this undiscerning zeal to make converts. But then in doing so, we're actually undermining the life of the church at the same time. It's really kind of tragic and and sad, but it's very common today across the board for the boundaries to not be recognized, not be respected and not, and not, and the, and the presuppositions not to be uh, kept. And so therefore uh, we end up undermining again, the, the holiness, we end up undermining the greatness uniqueness uh, of, of the church. Uh, and so people, there are people who convert, right? And then they walk away from the church. We've had some high profile apostasies from clergy in the last year. Uh, one, I think became nothing or something, or maybe he, maybe I don't know what he went to, but I don't, it, nothing 
that reminds me of any organized Christian group, if I remember right. One became a uniate, another became a uniate uh, priest. I'm a clergy. Why did that happen? How could that happen? I believe ultimately it goes back to this whole misunderstanding of catechism, the process of initiation, the process of, of going deeper, throwing pearls before swine, achieving uh, uh, authority before the time, uh, and, ma- and many other similar things which which an experienced guide would not fall into, right? Right. And so um, the, it, this is a kind this is an ex- extreme form of secularization, right? This is the this is a the 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 the, the church and the world and the boundaries between them being blurred and the church becoming more and more like the world. That's a terrible uh the worst. It's the worst thing that could happen. And so so here he's saying that this is a form of externalism, right? It's about numbers, getting the church big, bringing people in, uh, you know, the, the like a sound and fury, uh, you know, activity, activism and all this. And there's no real substance. There's no depth. And the remedy is to dial it back in your own life. Simplify your life, focus on the one thing needful, focus on prayer, focus on fasting, focus on keeping the, the vigils, doing your prayer rule. Don't get involved. If you're if you're in this sickness, you've got to cure yourself of it. You've got to cut yourself off from things that are going to increase the pride, increase the arrogance, right? This is, of course, something you discuss with your spiritual father. Uh, and you stay out of, of debates and disputes, which are which are not profitable. But that goes for everybody, frankly. Uh, I was taught, and it took me a while to put my head around it. I was taught by a very wise bishop and my spiritual father: do not, and the great elder friend's example, do not respond directly. For the most part, maybe there's exceptions, but ninety-five percent of the time, do not respond to the critics. Do not get engaged in. High, high, you know, back and forth. Uh, it inevitably is not profitable. It took me a while to get that because I had just like you. I'm sure a lot of you, all of us, were new zealot converts. We want to, you know, and we're also just really interested in going deep and understanding the faith, right? So we like to exchange on that online and all the rest. It really is ultimately not all that profitable, right? Sharing the faith is fine. It's wonderful. Uh, talking about the greatness of God, uh, the preaching, the preaching, the kidigma, the, the kidigma, the preaching of the church, absolutely sharing it, but not engaging it in vain disputes, and which can really be not only a waste of time, not only unprofitable for you, but a scandal, a scandal for a lot of people outside the church. Uh, spiritual experiences is one that he notes. What is that about? Uh, it's this feverish excitement. Always something tremendous. Oh my gosh, I'm special. I'm exceptional. I have this exceptional spiritual life. I'm walking on air. I'm going to be in the divine theosis in a couple of weeks. I should arrive. Um, the blood is boiling, right? Inflated vocabulary indicates puffed up instead of humble. They, they like to use these big words and impress people. Sources in, 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 in Protestantism, he says, and in one's own opinions picked up in the air. This is something that we all need to be on guard against uh, because we can become really, you know, big authorities and think we're really special uh, because 
this is the Gnosticism of our age, right? There's all this information out there and we can just pick it up and repeat it. And it's definitely a danger that we all uh, need to be on guard against because it's, it's not really going to be convincing at the, at the end of the day. Right. And we want to, we want to impress people. We want to be liked by people. We want to, uh, become authorities, feel that security, right? Okay, now I know, now I'm arrived. Uh, and it's uh, it, it speaks of a negativism, and it's very dangerous. We have to be on guard. God help us. God help us to stay away from it. Sober distrust of oneself again, constant grounding in the Holy Fathers and lives of the saints and counsel uh, from the fathers. The problem that he's talking about, obstacles for the convert, is discouragement, giving up. Uh, the syndrome of being quenched. Oh, we see that. People write me and say, I, I can't go on. Uh, I feel like I'm going to hell. Uh, somebody wrote me today. Uh, I feel like I'm going to be Judas one day. I'm going to betray Christ. I, I'm so weak. I've sinned so much. There's no hope for me. Uh, and so it's not, uh, It's you see this. And, and, and the, it's true that we present the exalted life of the saints. We're constantly trying to push people higher, right? So if you just constantly, if you're constantly before these exalted examples and then you realize, you know, I, I can't even get up in the morning and say my prayer rule, well, there's some people who are going to just give up. Like, well, I'll never be a saint. I'll never do this. And that's why it's good and important to remember that holiness is in the struggle. It's not up to us uh, to determine when and how we're going to arrive at a, at a point where we are going to actually be good ground at that point. We've cultivated, cultivated, we've turned, got the rocks out, and now we're at good ground and we can receive it. God alone knows that he's going to plant the seed when it's the right time, uh, and we have to just keep in the, on the path of purification, keep cultivating the ground, keep watering, keep clearing the uh, the field of our soul with, uh, you know, the thorns and the thistles and the rocks. That's our contribution. His contribution is aside. So don't give up. Don't uh, look at the, um, the progress you've made and say, well, I've never made any progress. Usually people make tons of progress, but they don't recognize, they don't recognize the progress they made, which is actually, Unfortunately, because it's God who's giving them these these steps. In fact, that you have arrived at the gate of the Orthodox Church alone is a great thing. It's a great and wondrous working of God within you. And we should give thanks to God for that. Um, so the he says, cause of this discouragement, overemphasis, overemphasis on the outward side, the public opinion, right? So... What do people say? What are we doing? How's the is the church growing? Um, what do people think of me? You know, am I doing well? So we're, we're we're looking around horizontally and comparing ourselves. One of the worst things you can do in the spiritual life: compare yourself to other people, not to the Lord, of course, and the saints, which is always humbling. But to compare yourself to other people, we don't know what they've been through. We don't know where they started. We don't know what is hidden from us. It is absolutely futile and vain to sit and compare yourself with other people in terms of the spiritual life or any, 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 in any way, really. It's vain. Do not do that. Do not sit and say, well, so-and-so is going to the monastery next week, and we haven't been to the monastery in a month and a half. 
and they're so pious and they're so this and they're so that. This is vain, actually. It's actually pride ultimately behind it. And we should not focus on, on we, first of all, we should give thanks. Secondly, we should f- turn to Lord and ask and go deeper. That's the only response. You want to know what, what, nine times out of 10, what's the response we should have to most of the things that happen in our life? The prayer corner. Go deeper. Go back to the Lord. Pray the prayer. That's how you're going to get over most of the problems and struggles. And that's the point of our life. Actually, that's the aim of our life is to constantly, whether we're in the prayer corner or not, constantly stand before God. Constantly remember God. We're going to talk about that in a bit. So the remedy for this, according to Father Seraphim, is emphasis on inward spiritual struggle, lack of concern for outward success, mindfulness of whom we are followers of, Christ crucified, but triumphant. All right? So there, there's some of the antidotes. Seems like that's a... Pretty common antidote for Father Seraphim, isn't it? We have go deeper, go inward, go deeper, go inward, right? Distrust, constant grounding, he says. Um, Concentrate on the spiritual life. Keep out of the limelight. These are the kind of things that that converts need to do. And finally, the number, the F, the double double axe, he says, broadness on the one hand, narrowness on the other. I'm not really sure what he's exactly referring to. They only speculate. I don't remember it being unpacked in the life. Maybe it was, and I missed it. Um, but the kind of bad broadness would be, I'm guessing he's talking about uh, an unprofitable broadness. Maybe it could either be worldliness or it could be a kind of relativism. And then narrowness on the other, uh, maybe a narrow-mindedness, kind of either in one of the isms, like a philatistic narrow-mindedness or a narrow-mindedness in terms of like kind of an elite complex or you don't want to be with certain people or you're, you're, you're overly narrow in your focus, uh, which is not that graciousness of Christ. I don't know. I'm speculating now what Father Seraphim is saying here. be interesting to see what your thoughts are. What do you think Father Seraphim is referring to? It's not really clear in the document. And but so that's that's, I think, a good way to start. Go back to our beloved Father Seraphim and what he has to say uh, in terms of um, in his day, what the converts were facing. I'm sure he has much more, but that is just a little excerpt from that chapter. If you're interested, you're going to go to his life. If you want to read more, right, go to his life. Uh, I think it's chapter I want to say chapter 88. And page 843 in the life of Father Seraphim, 843. And right after simplicity, he's got a chapter, Father Damacy's on, on converts. All right, so there you go. If you want to go deeper, you want to see that. There we go. That's where we got this from. There's much more there. Uh, it is. Uh, it's a, it's a, goes on for about eight pages there, so... Uh, highly recommend it. Beautiful little chapter. If you haven't read this, if you haven't read this, you're you're probably you're missing out big time as a convert. Especially, it's one of the best books you can read as an American convert to Orthodoxy. So, can't recommend it enough. But we're going to go on and talk about some other aspects that I prepared for you. 
of the struggles today. Now, there's a lot we could talk about. Before I get into this, what is a spiritual life? What is a spiritual life? Right? I'm, I'm going to take that aim tonight. I'm going to talk more about spiritual fathers. Uh, I'm going to talk about um, fasting and prayer. But before I get there, there's many other things we could talk about that are pitfalls. I'm just going to name them really quick. And you know this because you've, if you're here, you're listening to what we're doing. We've been talking about this for a lot. But you know the pitfalls. I've talked about this a lot. Today, you've got, and Father Seraphim does it in other places as well, you've got the pitfalls on the right, and you've got the pitfalls on the left, right? We all know this. We've got the overzealous zeal not according to knowledge that's always there. That's very clear in the patristic writings that you can fall off the boat, off the narrow path, the royal path to the right. You can become a zealot and filled with pride, not healed, but super correct. And Father Seraphim writes a lot about that. You can go to his letters or his life and read about that. And then, of course, on the left is the worldliness, secularization, ecumenism, philatism, the various worldliness that distorts the church, makes it into the world. And that is also a grave, grave uh, error. I would add to that uh, an ideological approach, which we talked about a little bit of, to orthodoxy, uh, acting like orthodoxy is like the best of all the religions or or it's the uh, it's the it's the it's the place to be if you're a conservative or. Or, you know, you're, you're uh, all of this kind of trendy, uh, very much of this world, temporary, temporal realm of, uh, of the struggle in the society, the culture wars, all of this kind of stuff, which some of it, it, you know, it's not all bad. It's not something that we would disagree with. Of course, for instance, we're Orthodox churches very much opposed to, for instance, the sin of abortion, very much opposed to it. Uh, I think the Orthodox Church implicitly supports people who are trying to save the unborn baby across the board, uh, would never in principle be able to support any kind of abortion ultimately. So there's so there's many things that, that the Orthodox Church is clear on in the culture wars and has a particular position that does line up, you know, oftentimes with the more conservative approach. But if you're just conservative and not Orthodox, then you're not, you know, and not traditional, not living the life of the spirit, not living the spiritual life, well, you, you're doing a great, great disservice to yourself. In fact, you're, you're heaping condemnation upon yourself. Let me say that again. If you become orthodox, you be very, very zealous for the morality of the church, the, the, the witness of the world, the mission of the church, these externals, right? Uh, and you're, um, uh, or you're, 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 you're politically aligned with, you know, the czar or whatever it is. There's all kinds of different things that are part of this pilgrimage of the church in the world that the church definitely gives a witness to. But if that's what, if that's what it is to be orthodox for you, that's what it means to be orthodox. You have, you have be, become orthodox without going into the house and living the, in, in, the, in the father's house. You've, you've come and you've, you've, you've put the, 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 the flag out in the, on the flagpole, you've you've uh, you've 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 raised it high. You've chanted the patriotic hymns, and you never entered in to live with the uh, with the king and queen and the and 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 the all the the royalty, which are the saints, right? That doesn't make any sense. Like, and, and in fact, the Lord's going to say, "What do you? Who are you?" Right. So there's there's many ways that we can enter without entering. We can become orthodox without going and becoming orthodox, right? Deeply. And living the life 
That's a tragedy. The whole point of the struggle on the external side of the dogmas against the ecumenism and all that, the whole point of that is to protect the inner life, right? That's why it's a, there's, there's grave danger in this. What, the thing we talked about earlier is grave danger in exposing and sharing and promoting the inner life of the church outside. There's a grave danger in that. It's, it's a form of secularization. No, no, no. We we don't do that. We protect the inner life like a little baby, like a, a you know a delicate egg that we just carry. We don't want to break. That's how we deal with inner life. We don't go talking about it. We don't go sharing it everywhere. We preach Christ crucified. We teach the, we teach the the world and preach to the world Christ, who is all in all. Now. Having said all that, I recognize the difficulty of it all today. Here I am on the internet. I'm teaching, hopefully, Orthodox Christians for the most part, but there are many other people who aren't Orthodox who come onto our platform and they say terrible things or they say contrary things. And we are, unfortunately, talking about some aspects of the inner life of the church and throwing pearls before swine. It is, unfortunately, the, some of what is happening today in spite of our good desire for it not to happen because we want to reach you, the faithful. We want to be able to teach and preach and bring you uh, all, dispersed all around the world, the Orthodox faith. And we do our, our best to uh, immediately cut off those, those incidents where people are, you know, blaspheming the Lord because they are not in position to understand. And it's a tragedy. So it's a difficult, it's difficult today. Everything's out there, right? And one of the terrible things of our age is that everything's out there and there's, a, there's so little respect. Uh, it's a part of why they lose respect. You know, familiarity breeds contempt. That's, that's what we're seeing in uh, spiritually work here. So just to say that there are these dangers that, that you, think you, can, you think you've arrived at becoming an Orthodox Christian and yet you haven't begun to pray. You haven't begun to fast. You don't keep... The, the, the things of the spiritual life, you haven't acquired a lot of self-knowledge. You're not constantly in the divine services. This orthodoxy that you're living, that any one of us could live externally with lots of fervor, is not healing, right? It's not the hospital. It's like you're in the waiting room and you're so thrilled about being in the waiting room. But, hey, what? there's more to it. Get in, come in, and let's get you... Expose your sicknesses to the doctor so he can heal you. And that's hard. That's hard to do. And that, But that's the point of it all, is that we all become healed, purified, illumined, and like Christ. Uh, otherwise, there's no point, right? It does, the end of it doesn't make any sense. Like, God doesn't need us. He's not waiting for us to, uh, uh, you know, save the world, save the church, and things like that. No, no, no. This is this is delusional. We are working for the out of the love of God. Whatever we do has to be for Christ and in Christ. It has to be for the love of Christ and in Christ. And then it's and for the neighbor, right? Whatever we do, you know, opposing ecumenism has to be done for Christ, in Christ, and for the love of our neighbor, and not any ideological, political, uh, whatever else uh, approach that might be uh, in in vogue today. All right, now let's go, let's move on to that, because I, I think we've talked about that a lot, and we don't need to do it again and again. Let's talk about the spiritual life and trying to help you go deeper in the spiritual life, which is the key, right, and which is going to protect you from all the isms of the world, ultimately. What is the spiritual life, though? Like, people talk about the spiritual life, and in Greece, there's this idea that spiritual life includes a lot of cultural stuff. 
a lot of like, uh, you know, artistic stuff, uh, writing, uh, iconography or not even iconography, painting. And there's this broad use of the term spiritual to include anything that has to do uh, with creativity. And that's not the spiritual life, right? Spiritual life is not being a good person. Spiritual life is not keeping the law. The spiritual life is not uh, being a good citizen. The spiritual life is not being a kind person. It could be an ex- expression of, uh, of having the spirit of God. But it's not it's not the spiritual life, right? It's not it's not if you achieve that kind of kind uh, moral person in society, that's not necessarily mean you have a spiritual life. Uh, there could be virtue on a human plane, which is impressive, which is not foreign in Christ, which is not salvific. Let me repeat that: there could be virtue on the human plane among people who are not initiated in the church or even Orthodox Christians who are not availing themselves to the life of the church. And they could be kind and gentle and whatever else. Some of them have the gifts from childhood on because they're, they're inheriting certain tendencies and, and, and inclinations from their, from their mothers and fathers and, and aunts and uncles or whatever. But that doesn't necessarily mean there's a spiritual life because the spiritual life means the spirit of God. It means being in and living in the spirit of God. And it, and it, and it means also being in the truth. It means being initiated into the life. It's a very particular reality. And the fruit of that is going to be absolutely a participation in the spirit of God, which will bring forth all the virtues. But you could definitely be deceived. And many are today thinking that if I am a nice person, a kind person, a patient person, I do a lot of moral good things in society. Therefore, I am living the life of Christ. I'm a spiritual person and I will be, uh, yeah, that is the sign of the presence of the spirit of God. Not, not entirely, no. That's not necessarily the case. St. Ignatius Brianchininov talks very much beautifully about this in the arena. And if you want to read more about that, I recommend it. And he talks about how that, Virtue without uh, the spirit, without being in and for Christ, is not salvific. So we're going to talk about that. You're going to see why that's the case in a minute. So let's see. What is the spiritual life? The life of the Holy Spirit as the common, uncreated, the common, uncreated, natural energy of the one triune God. All right. This is kind of a theological, technical definition, but it's very important we start on the right basis. The life of the Holy Spirit as the common, uncreated natural energy of the one true and true God. So this is the divine energies of God. This is the life the, the, the of the Holy Trinity. This is what the love and life that is shared and, and comes down to us. We live the spiritual life when we participate, the Greek term is methexy, which is not far from being inebriated. I mean, that's it's not exactly that, but it's kind of close to that in Greek. It's being totally immersed, totally immersed in the grace of God, right? When we live the spiritual life, when we participate in the very divinity of God by grace, right? This is the gift. It's God. It's divine energies. But it's a participation in the divine essence, according to the Apostle Peter in his epistle. If you want to read more, go to the epistle of the Apostle Peter, where he talks about participation 
in the divine essence. And he doesn't mean that we become by essence or by nature God. That's not what he's saying. We participate by the, the divine energies, by the grace of God, but in the life of God himself. This is the great gift. This is what he wanted for Adam and Eve from the beginning. If they would stayed the course, they would have participated uh, in the divine energies and would have been established, well established in this participation. This is the spiritual man. Listen who the spiritual man is. He who has been enriched, who's been totally made wealthy, made rich by the spirit of God, in body and soul with the very spirit of God. That is his uncreated energy, right? That is the spiritual man, not the moral man. It's not the good man, quote unquote, good man. The spirit of man is, the spiritual man is this and nothing less, has the spirit of God himself, the uncreated energies of God. This spiritual life is only lived in the Orthodox church and only for those who fulfill certain presuppositions. Now, this is the hardest part for us coming from the various heteronized confessions where we felt that we were very zealous. We wouldn't be here tonight if we weren't zealous for Christ, even among the heterodox, because it's hard to become orthodox. It's the hardest thing probably in the world to become truly immersed and orthodox, to go deeply. Uh, so we're not, I doubt that anybody is here listening to me tonight or anybody is in the Orthodox Church who really is really there, maybe there's exceptions, without having zeal for God and felt the pull of God and the love of God. And all of that is certainly possible outside the One Holy Catholic Church. But the spiritual life is not that. Christ, the Holy Spirit, draws us, pulls us, guides us from outside. He doesn't live within us, outside of the church. He doesn't come and make his abode in us, outside the church. And that's exactly why all of heterodoxy is falling apart before our eyes, and all those orthodox who are running after the heterodox are falling apart before our eyes. They're free. They're free to do what they like. People are free, right? And at the end times, we know that many, many, many who call in the name of Christ, say they're Christians, will fall away. So people are free. But whatever we see, uh, the fruits we see, rather, outside the church are not just because of the apostasy of the world, the pressure of the world. It's a dissolution from within. Now, there are many, many people outside the church who want to be with Christ, are struggling to be with Christ, and only God will judge their eternal state. None of us have any idea. We don't even know ourselves. Let's be honest. As you'll see, the spiritual life means that you come to deep spiritual knowledge of yourself. You see all of your imperfections and sicknesses. And only by the grace of God, you don't fall into total despair. Keep thy mind in hell and despair not, he says, right? That's, the, that's, the, that's our future. If you go deep, that's your future. Your mind will be in hell, but by God's grace, you will not despair. Because that's what this world is without God, right? And every time we turn away, we're not stable, and we worship at the at the altar of our ego, that's darkness, that's hell, right? That's the foretaste of hell. So the spiritual life, however, is led only after the presuppositions are fulfilled. And those are entry into the body of Christ, the mysteries of Christ, with all the presuppositions that, that exist for that to be life-giving, right? So let's be very clear 
because there are many today, there are many today, even in the church today, who are very confused on this, thinking that the spiritual life is somehow here and there, outside, inside, orthodox, not orthodox, mysteries, not mysteries. All of these things have been relativized. These are the boundaries that have been relativized by even those, unfortunately, who are under the sway of ecumenism. They don't understand the presuppositions. They don't respect the presuppositions. This is the same case with the reception of converts and the baptism question. Across the board, we have this problem of not understanding and respecting the presuppositions and the boundaries because we don't have experience. Now, you and I need to understand, we don't have experience, brothers and sisters. We should not sit and say, well, no, 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 what is he saying? How could he speak like this? This is what the Father says. It's not what I'm saying. So admit, and you and I need to admit, we don't have experience, right? So we should not stand and act as if we can speak with any authority. We come and sit at the feet of the saints, and the saints are clear that it is only in the theanthropic body of Christ, which is very particular. It has an identity that is like none other, and only this body is where this happens, and only if we fulfill the presuppositions, right? Just because you got in, you could still be a stranger. Judas was a stranger. He was at the mystical supper. He was a stranger. He had no idea what he was doing, unfortunately. Well, then again, he knew something, but he was in delusion. All right, so now we're going to go to the next slide, and we're going to say more specifically, what is a spiritual life? So there are basic presuppositions for a spiritual life. And the, one of the cornerstones, this is just an introduction, folks. I hope we can get this translated. This is a beautiful essay. I've, I've actually presented this essay already in English. I've got to find my presentation. There's all kinds of notes there. It'll help me translate it. But as I was going through it tonight, I was like, you loser. I mean, come on. You've been 23 years or 20 years in Greece, and you sat at his feet for about 15 or 18 of those, and you didn't translate this essay. This is what I was saying to myself. It's pathetic. I'm pathetic. Anyway, God help us. I hopefully you get this translated. But one of the basic things is said in the essay, and of course, you can find it in Contemporary Saints as well. Uh, Saint Ignatius, again, Brianna is one of the best, most clear on this, is that the basic presuppositions for the spiritual life is that it's done in Christ and for Christ. In Christ means in the church, the body of Christ, in the mysteries. For Christ means that you're consciously, intentionally living for the person of Christ. It's a personal, intense relationship with the second person of the Holy Trinity. This is what we're called to. He's all in all. It's not I, but Christ who lives in me, the Apostle Paul says. He was everything to the Apostle Paul and everything to every saint. So, Having said that, then we move on to the particulars that, that are necessary for a life in Christ, and that is participation in the divine mysteries. That means you're baptized, you're chrismated, you commune, you have the various mysteries of the church, all the mysteries, not just the seven mysteries. Right? Say we have seven mysteries. That's a legal Latin Western idea that has not really ever been taught by the fathers. We don't just have seven. Of course, we can talk about seven because they're the ones that are very well known, but there's more. There's more than seven. There's the tonsure. That's a, that's a mystery. There's the others that we call sacramentals in the West, but they're mysteries of the church. Miracles happen all the time in the church. How about the blessing of the holy water? How about the blessing of the holy water on theophany? That's a mystery. That 
is kept and could be kept for years without spoiling. That's a mystery of the presence of God. There's nothing lesser about it. It's still God at work in the world. Uh, so there are many things that we have in the life of the church that are really mysteries of God's presence. Everything that is Christ in Christ by Christ is a mystery is a mystery of his presence, right? That's what they mean here. It's his divine presence of God. So all the mysteries are by Christ and in Christ, and Christ himself is given and gives, right? So the divine Eucharist, when you see the priest up there praying, you must know that his hands are being used by Christ, and Christ is bringing about the transformation of the bread and wine into his own body and blood. He's the one imparting it, to all the people, through his holy angels. It is Christ all in all. And it's an eternal event that happens in heaven that you and I participate in. It's not something on earth. And when you say on earth, I don't mean physically we leave the earth. I mean that spiritually, it is not earthly, is not fleshly, it is not worldly. It is spiritual. And that's a heavenly event, right? So the spirit of God being present and, and, and working through uh, the priest for the salvation of the world. So we participate in the mysteries, but we don't just participate in the mysteries legalistically, externally, but with the presuppositions met. What are one of those presuppositions? There are many. And that is that we're being, we are open to the grace of God. We have a good disposition. We're struggling. We're saying yes. So the synergy has to be there, right? God offers himself in every mystery, but we have to work with that. We have to be open to that. We have to desire it. There's nothing mechanical. There's nothing magical in the church, right? It depends on our disposition. So if we, depending on how we approach the holy mysteries, we will walk away with the manifestation of the grace of God or not in our lives, right? So because he gives himself totally in every mystery, not, not partially. There is no partial in God. There's all or nothing. He gives himself totally in every mystery. It's all, you don't participate. You don't commune of the, a part of the body and blood of Christ. We don't say a particle is imparted to the servant of God. No, we don't say that, do we? We say, we say the body and blood, and there is no division in Christ. There's a, it's a mystery of his totality. It's given to every one of us. Every part is the whole. This is the great mystery. And that's why in the Orthodox Church, every local church is the whole church. Every divine Eucharist is the whole body of Christ present because it's all happening at the throne of God, all happening in God. It's a great mystery of the church, the life of the church. So we have to be receptive to the grace. And that, and that means that there's a cleansing of the spiritual senses that's going on. There's a cleansing of the spiritual senses that's going on, Right. The minute we open up, we say yes, and that yes is our whole life, right? We want we have to say yes with our whole body, soul, and mind, that, with the love of God, with all our soul, all our strength, all our mind. So when that happens, then there's a the, be, the beginning of the purification of the spiritual senses. We start to see, we start to live according to the Spirit. We have to have, additionally, a loving and living stance vis-a-vis the Lord. We can't Go to church and expect the grace of God to visit us and expect the mystery, the spiritual life to be led. If we don't have a loving and living, living would be existential, maybe is the Greek word, English word. It's ontologiki or uh, ipaxiaki. 
And, and that means that it's experiential. It's epignosis. There's a, there's a, there's a practical and experiential ex thing going on here. It's not just an intellectual thing. It's not just my body is in the temple. It's not just, well, I'm doing the right thing. I'm a good person. But it's actually a participation and experience and active uh, and loving embrace of God. See, these things are necessary for the spiritual life to happen. This is our part. Participate in this. Then we're going to see that also the fruit of all this, if it's really a spiritual life is happening, then we're going to have self-knowledge. Aftognosia in Greek, in, in Greek, right? And the, the term for God knowledge, theognosia. So it's God knowledge and self-knowledge, like literally. Those two things are inseparable. They come from the presence of the Spirit of God coming, and we start to see ourselves. What does it mean to be humble? It means to see ourselves, to be in reality, not to be in delusion. The proud man is in delusion. He thinks something of himself. He doesn't have anything, and he thinks he has something. This is the reality of the proud man. He doesn't see himself properly. So the humble man is the one who has self-knowledge. He's come to himself. He starts to see deeper and deeper. To believe that one is deeply sinful. If you don't think you're deeply sinful, you have not achieved self-knowledge. You're not even achieved a par part of self-knowledge. You haven't begun. If you don't see yourself as utterly pathetic, right? That's what the Holy Spirit does. It comes and exposes itself. And then we, oh my goodness, it's very hard to deal with. What a stench I have. Man, I can't even smell the little bit coming out of my soul. I, I am so egotistical. I'm so connected to the food and the drink and the raiment. What do people say about me? What do people think about me? Right? This is who I am. That stinks to all high heaven. It's delusional. But then we begin to see it. So that's who I am. That's who I am. That's a, that's a fruit of the Spirit of God. And that is a presupposition to lead the spiritual life. Right? That's when you start leading the spiritual life. It's when you see the stench. You smell the stench. You also need an enlightened spiritual guide. And this is one of the great points of pain, the pain points for our church today. But it always was that. You'll see a quote in a minute from Bishop Carlos Uswear talking about the Russian church and the 14th, 15th, 16th century, they were bewailing the lack of spiritual guides. It is not all that new. Unfortunately, it's quite acute. We don't have spiritual guides today, many, especially in the missionary lands of America and Australia and UK and places like this. So there's lots of converts and we don't have a lot of experience, but we need an enlightened spiritual guide. And we'll talk about that in a minute, so I'm not going to go any further. There's two cards on that. All of this is a progressive cleansing of the inner man leading to humility. We kind of already mentioned that, but it, it, it bears repeating. It's a progressive cleansing, right? You're going to slowly, and it really never ends, but it does get, you know, just like you would, if you had an abandoned house with the door, where the windows and doors were shattered and, and it was open to, animals and everything if you came in to clean that house do you think you would just one cleaning would do it what do you think you'd be cleaning again and again and again wouldn't you 
you would be cleaning again and again and again until you got it all clean. And then you might have to replace things and order things and you have to rebuild things and all kinds of things would happen. That's how our soul is. It's a progressive thing. It goes on and on. And that's the little joys we have and the little pain, the, the great pain we have at seeing just how much cleansing needs to happen. And one of the most important, if not the most important, is the keeping of the commandments, right? That we love God. We have, to, we have to strive to keep his commandments. The commandments of God are not rules. They're life themselves, life itself. The commandments are God himself working within us. It's the medicine that we apply to all of our wounds, it is the light that comes to our darkness. It's like when we keep the commandments, we then see ourselves, we see who God is, and we begin to stand properly before God, and we, the obstacles to prayer start to disappear. You cannot have a prayer life without the keeping of the commandments, right? We could go. We could have a whole lecture series on the keeping of the commandments, uh, but it is essential that we struggle to keep the commandments. And, and that means also the guidance of our spiritual father who is applying the commandments to our life. If he's a true spiritual father, another aspect of what a true spiritual life is going to be like and, and look like is that there is unceasing prayer. You might say, well, uh, father, I, I do like a hundred or 300 Jesus prayers in the morning. I try to say Jesus prayer throughout the day, but unceasing prayer. That is ultimately what, when you talk about the spiritual life, and we mean that you're leading the spiritual life, the spirit of God is dwelling within you, and you're not turning away at all, you have unceasing prayer. So that is a little picture. We're going to go further in, and more pictures. We're going to give you more pictures. But that is a very brief, very brief overview of some of the major presuppositions and signs of a spiritual life. You see how far that is from a simply moral life, being a good person? This has so little in common with just being a good, quote unquote, good person, being a moral person, right? These things, you don't have to, to lead, to be a good person in society and do good things. You don't have to do all this, right? Self-knowledge and unceasing prayer and um, smelling the stench. I mean, there are many people who just are very kind people. They do nice things through society. They, they don't ever smell the stench of their own soul. They don't come to self-knowledge. They don't, uh, they don't fast and pray. They don't uh, engage the Jesus prayer. And so the spiritual life, brothers and sisters, is not just the moral uh, or religious life, quote unquote, right? Much, much more. All right. So this is now uh, something I want to double down on is this question of keeping uh, the commandments. Wait a minute. Did I go? Did I jump to? I jumped to. All right. Now, yeah. Here's where we are. Sorry. Commandments here. Now, <clears throat> we said already. We'll repeat it again. The commandments are not just rules, but they're life, and they're united. Actually, they're all one. We often think about well, the commandments are many, and I have to go and struggle to keep one at a time. But actually, and I'm not going to be able to unpack this much, but for another time. They're all united because they're all essentially the life in Christ. When they're kept, it means that there's one life in Christ. And all of the virtues which we're struggling to obtain and are, are, are essentially gifts of God, 
they come with the presence of the Holy Spirit. So you do not, you cannot obtain the virtues piecemeal. You might say, well, I know people who are very kind, very patient, whatever, you know, they seem very virtuous. Again, if it's of the Holy Spirit, in the Holy Spirit, for Christ, in Christ, it is a fruit of the presence of the Holy Spirit. And the Holy Spirit comes and brings all the virtues with him. Just like Christ comes and is all of Christ and not a portion that we commune in the mysteries. And just like there's all the commandments kept when one leads a spiritual life and all the virtues are fruit of that spiritual life, there, there's a unity in all this. And it's not, we think of it from the human perspective, so to speak, right? We think, okay, we look at the commandments like, okay, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to struggle to keep them. But that, that is not what we're doing here. That's not what we're talking about. That can be done by anybody. Don't have to be a member of the church. What we're talking about is we are we are getting rid of all the obstacles for the Holy Spirit to come and dwell in us. And with the Holy Spirit comes all the virtues. And with the Holy Spirit comes the, the, the observance of all the commandments because they're essentially the one life in Christ. Okay, now that could that could take a long time to unpack, but it's really important, at least theoretically, for us to put that as a kind of like corner marker or or, or or cornerstone in our perception of things. And it's going to take time to simulate what all that means, right? I'm not going to get in, I'm not going to be able to get into it all tonight. Uh, and I, myself, I'm still learning. Maybe uh, I've got a few steps ahead of you. Maybe, I don't know, maybe not, but, uh, because I sat at the foot, feet of this tremendous professor and teacher, but it's a application is another thing entirely, isn't it? I can theoretically understand something and hopefully that's what I'm going to help you to do tonight, but application, well, that's a total, totally different reality, isn't it? It's important that we understand it theoretically, at least let's do that. Let's start, start tonight doing that because then we're not in the realm of heterodoxy and delusion, but we're in on the path of orthodoxy. So, the virtues come as the fruit of the presence of the Holy Spirit. And the Holy Spirit actualizes them within us. All right, very important. It's a, the virtues are the fruit of the Holy Spirit, and the Holy Spirit is actually working within us to actualize them. And without the Holy Spirit and without his activity in us, we cannot carry out the virtues. So do you understand that the whole point of our life is the acquisition of the Holy Spirit, just as St. Seraphim of Seraph taught. It's not doing good works. It's not even praying. That's not the point of our life. Oh, I prayed 40 hours a week. That's not the end goal. In fact, in heaven, they cease to pray. They worship at the feet of God, at the throne of God. And, and all of that is put aside, and there's just communion and worship and love so the the presence and the working of the holy spirit within us is the aim of our life our spiritual life so we already said the next point virtue which is not done for the love of christ and is not an expression of this love is not a value for the faithful and not a fruit of the holy spirit all right so that's very important we've said that before christ the truth in life he is truth he is life he is absolute fullness. And he is given as a gift in totality. We already said this, but it bears repeating. 
charismatically means to, as a gift. Charismatiki, the Greek word that we translate as charismatically, has nothing to do with the charismatic movement. It has everything to do with being a gift of God. And it's, the gift is not piecemeal, it's total. It's, it's himself. He is the gift. And you can't get a part of him. You're not a little bit pregnant with him. You cannot have the light and have a part of you in darkness. You cannot be at once sick and healthy. Now, this sounds like it shuts us off because we all feel very sick, don't we? We all feel like we're a little bit in darkness. Well, that is exactly why we are still on the path and in the uh, purification. We're still in the process of fulfilling the first commandment. We don't fulfill the first commandment. We don't love him with our whole soul, heart, and mind, and strength. We turn away. And if we turn away, the minute we turn away, we're no longer an expression of and the presence of the Holy Spirit and love and communion. So that is the reality that we have to face. The good news is that God is a jealous and loving God, and he wants us again and again and again, we say in the church, don't we? Again and again, let us pray to the Lord. That's it's not an accident. Again and again and again, you turn back. You fell, you get up. You fail, you get up. That shows you love. If you fall and don't get up, you don't love. So we love, and if we don't love, we say, I want to love. And if we don't want to love, we say, I want to want to love. And that's what our stance has to be continually. Go deeper, back, again and again and again, right? Now, all of this is through and in God and in Christ and in the Holy Spirit, but prayer is what is the, is the path and the process by which all of these gifts are given. But again, prayer without keeping of the commandments is not going to be fruitful. So we have to, if we want to enter into life, we have to keep the commandments. There's a danger today among many converts and i've seen this not a few times that we read the philokalia we read the i don't know the ever to get the nos you know which is very practical but it still has a lot of exalted things we read uh you know these great spiritual texts we want we want what we see in the pilgrim we read the way of a pilgrim so i want that i want that i mean who doesn't right when you read the i'm always just been moved by the way we had the pilgrim. I want, I want what he wanted, what he had. So that's fine. That's good. We should want that. But we don't realize you can't just jump to that. It's not like you, it's not like a mechanical thing. Like, oh, I'm going to get that. Like, it's not in your hands entirely, right? Obviously, you've got to be patient because you don't even see the stuff that's obstructing you for what you want to achieve, right? You have to go again, be exposed. You've got to go naked. You got to see all your imperfections. You got to see all that garbage. You got to go, oh my goodness, how ugly am I? Right? And then you begin to see, oh, okay, I understand now. And then the slowly, slowly purified, slowly working off. It's like that in the physical. You know, people are, you see this on social media everywhere. They're just crazy about physical health. And you see all these bodies, these sculpted bodies. And we're supposed to worship at the feet of these sculpted bodies. We want to be like them. I mean, Sure. I mean, who doesn't want to be in fit, in health and all that? That's good. But it's obviously almost idolatrous. You know, it's, it's a temptation. Uh, but you see that the same things that work there that's in the spiritual. I mean, not the same thing, but it, it's similar, isn't it? Like 
to get to the point where you have a, you know, whatever, a very sculpted physical body, it's going to take many, 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 many hours of sacrifice of your time and effort. It's going to take push-ups and sit-ups and I don't know what, right? And that's similar to the spiritual life, right? You've got to be patient in virtue and patient in struggle and patient in repentance. You've got to get up and you've got to come back again and again and again. So that's how you are going to achieve those states that you're that you're longing for. But there's a temptation that people are rushing to exalt, have exalted states of prayer, or they think themselves really advanced uh, without laying the foundation of keeping the commandments and obedience to Christ in and through the spiritual father. This is given, of course, that we're talking about in a minute, the spiritual father, that you have a spiritual father who knows what he's doing. It's not, not every spiritual father, not every priest, not every confessor can guide you uh, on the spiritual life. Unfortunately, this is we have a lot of very good priests, but they've not been trained or taught uh, these things. And, and we're all students here. Uh, I'm not acting as if I have some something better than they. But the reality is we spiritual fathers today are few. So we, we, does that mean we don't need one? No, you still need one. So what are we going to do? Well, we'll talk about that in a second. But you need one. You've got to have a, as we say in Greek, anaphora, right? You've got to have a reference to a human being who is a disciple of the Christ, somebody who's been given by the church to guide you. You've got to have that person in your life. You go and you lay yourself out. And you've got to understand that this person, just like in the divine liturgy, we said Christ is giving and given. It's the same thing in the mystery of confession. Christ is giving and given. Now, the mystery of confession is not necessarily every single thing the priest says in time in terms of guidance, because we know we have priests who are guiding people during COVID wrong or on questions of faith and, uh, you know, the dogmas of the church. We have people who are very mistaken today and they're called priests and bishops. This is reality. It's not new. It's been going on for 2000 years. But so it's so that's why you choose wisely who your spiritual father will be. It's very clear. You can find passages in the Yerodikon, in the Saints of the Fathers and other places where they say, search out. This isn't a time of great spiritual fathers, right? This is if you went to the Egypt, Egyptian desert in the fourth century. You had amazing spiritual fathers, people walking on water. You had people walking. I mean, just unbelievable spiritual life. St. Anthony of the Great, uh, just endless feats of spiritual, miraculous spiritual life in the desert, right? Because they lived so much for God and in God. So even then they say, be careful who you choose as a spiritual father. Now, having chosen, then you do obedience and you do as you would to Christ, total and uninhibited obedience, but you choose wisely before you submit yourself. Now you're going to say, well, Father, that's great. It's wonderful. But here I am. And, you know, uh, I don't have any spiritual father like that that can guide me. What do I do? Okay, we're going to talk about that in a second. Be patient. So the remedy here of this danger of seeking out exalted spiritual states and, you know, I'm going to apply what I read about in John the Ladder is to ground yourself in the practical life, spiritual life, the practical life of day-to-day spiritual struggle, love of neighbor, love of God, being uh, 
trying to apply and acquire the virtues, constant repentance, and worthily communing frequently, having a blessing of your spiritual father to frequently commune, hopefully, or as frequently as he gives you the blessing. That's focus on this, this aspect, the, the practical life. And don't get and and be and ask God for self-knowledge. Where am I? Am I an A or B or C or where am I on the whole process here? Please enlighten my darkness. What do I need to learn next? I don't, I'm not gonna obviously I'm not in the desert of Egypt, I'm not on Mount Sinai. A lot of this stuff is beyond me. I just picked up the book yesterday. I can't apply everything. What do I need to learn now? What's the next step? And it's usually going to be very down-to-earth, practical, and immediate. Like, well, I blew up at my husband yesterday. I totally lost that my handle, and I got angry. I swore at him. Oh, okay. Okay, well, like, step two to, to the end of the book, forget about, right? Okay, we're, let's step on it. Let's, let's work on one. Let's work on two. Let's go back and forth. Maybe three. I don't know. But you're... Let's be honest about who we are and where we're at and not be upset about it because you can only start where you are, right? And you need to stay where you are and start there and then go step by step by step. That's how it works in the spiritual life. If you jump and you ignore, you're going to have to come back. It's like, I don't know what's the game, uh, you know, go back to the beginning of the game. You're going to have to stop and go back and redo things. That's going to be unfortunate. So step by step. Now, you're going to say, well, I'm still in the process of finding a spiritual father. What do I do? What do I do? I think I'm going to read to go to the next one. Let me see. Um, let's go to the next one. Actually, it's out of order here. The next one, which is the quote from Bishop Kalistos. And this, again, is just touching on this topic. We're just touching on these things. This is not in-depth at all here. But we have to realize if we have ourself as a spiritual father, we have a fool for a spiritual father. And this is a saying that I'm pretty sure goes back to the Desert Fathers, although it's been repeated and it's been attributed to other people. But it's, it's very true. It's very true. If you have yourself as a spiritual father, and I, I ask people all the time, one of the first things I ask, they write me and say, Father Peter, can I do this? Should I do that? I say, who's your spiritual father? Do you have a spiritual father? And most people say no. And that's a tragedy. And it's good that they're asking me or asking a priest. But you've got to realize if you don't have a spiritual father, you don't have a priest, you don't have somebody you're going to, it's so important to realize you've got to go to a priest in, in your parish or the parish priest or the or the priest down the street or the monastery nearby or whatever uh, guy in line like me. I don't know. Somebody. You've got to have someone who's going to be able to guide you and show you yourself. Because there's a lot of stuff we assume we think we know. We don't know. We don't know. And even if we do know, we, we still have pride. We need to be humble. There's so much to it. So... Do not have yourself as a spiritual father. You need to have someone else and a guide to someone else. Um, so let's read this quote from Bishop Carlos. So the person who's looking for a spiritual father, he may turn in the first place to books. Right in the 15th century, St. Niall Sorsky, the great Hesychist in Russia in the 1400s, he laments the extreme scarcity of qualified spiritual directors. Yet how much more frequent they must have been in his day than in ours. True, Bishop Goddesses. Search diligently, he urges, for a sure and trustworthy guide. 
Quote, however, if such a teacher cannot be found, then the Holy Fathers order us to turn to the scriptures and listen to our Lord himself speaking, unquote. Since the testimony of scripture should not be isolated, however, from the continuing witness of the spirit in the life of the church, the inquirer will absolutely, I'm adding absolutely, also read the works of the fathers. And above all, the Philogalia. Now, I would say not above all. Philogalia is a wonderful text, but I don't think most of us converts are going to be able to pick up the Philogalia in any time soon. If you do pick it up, you need to go often to your spiritual guide and say, what's this all about? And not apply anything without a blessing. Uh, but the Philogalia is could be a catch-all phrase for the patristic literature, but there is more practical patristic literature than the Philokalia, which much, many of us would benefit from. Uh, the uh, Arsenufius and John on the spiritual life, the Father from Rose translated, or uh, St. Dorotheos of Gaza, uh, or the Evergetinos that I mentioned earlier, the Saints of the Fathers, uh, and many other texts like this are very, very much, I think, very profitable for us, even more so than the Philokalia. Uh, so having said that, it's a very good statement. Otherwise, I'm, I don't have any objections. So we need to go to the scriptures, of course, but we need to always read the scriptures with the Holy Fathers, and then we need to apply them with spiritual guidance if possible. If we don't have any spiritual guidance, then we have to run to the Fathers as much as possible and find what we can among them for um, spiritual guidance. But he says, look, there's evident danger here. Before, before we uh, move on, there is evident danger here. The Starrets adapts his guidance to the inward state of each books offer the same advice to everyone. So that's exactly the problem with the books, right? You can, you're getting a basic statement, which is universally applied, but not necessarily in your case in the same way, at the same time. There's so many variables. So how is the beginner to discern whether or not a particular text is applicable to his own situation. Even if he cannot find a spiritual father in the full sense, he should at least try to find someone more experienced than himself able to guide him in his reading. So that's Bishop Carlos, which I think that more or less repeats what I said earlier. And then I want to say more particular, the dangers here and the solutions for us right now in most of the Western world, what are we going to do about finding a spiritual father, which we have established is essential, right? We've established that it's essential to have spiritual guidance. So the dangers I see right now are the three, and they're very common. Either someone has no spiritual father or they have themselves, in other words, same thing, as a spiritual guide, okay? That's a problem. Or they're going to several spiritual guides. I have someone or a couple of people who write me and they have another spiritual father and they write me and I, I constantly saying, go to your spiritual father. Don't ask four or five or three or four or five guides. Not a good idea, right? Now, your spiritual father may at times say you should go to father so-and-so or elder so-and-so. And that's perfectly blessed. You get a blessing, you go. Because they might say, well, I don't really know that topic. Or I don't really, I'm not really experienced with that, right? Uh, so you need to uh, not go to many spiritual guides. Not a good idea. Oh, I'm going to go, I'm going to go talk to elder so-and-so today. I think I'll go over and talk to Father So-and-so. What does he think? Uh, let's get a third opinion. Now, 
If you have a spiritual father and he, again, says, go speak to so-and-so and then go speak to so-and-so, that's great. Or if you say, I really, if it's blessed, father, may I speak to so-and-so about this? And he says, go, then go. But don't make it a habit of going around to many spiritual guides. It ends up being the same thing in the end. You have your own self as a spiritual guide because you will choose what you think is best among the three people who advise. Right. You might think, oh, I think I'll take that one. It's nicer. It's easier or whatever. And you end up being your own spiritual guide again. So the third one is, and this is problematic, and we have a few in our day, and it's always been this case, but maybe more today, it seems. We have deluded, innovating, or even heretical-minded spiritual fathers, people who are guiding people but not on the path of salvation, with the various heresies of the 20th century, ecumenism, philatism, globalism, whatever it is that's ailing us, wokeism. There's a variety of people out there, I think not as many as we often think because it, they get a lot of press, but in reality, they're, they're pretty much a minority, but they still do exist. And they're really not orthodox in their mindset. They're not orthodox in their way. They're innovating in a variety of ways. And that's someone you need to avoid. You need to avoid. And you need, every one of us has a basic grasp. If we're orthodox, we've been catechized of the orthodox faith. We should be able to discern the boundaries of the church and we should be able to know the basics of the dogmas. So if somebody stands up and says to you, there are many paths up the mountain, you should immediately know as an Christian, no, they're not. Christ says, everyone must go to the Father through me. Or if somebody stands up and says, well, there are many churches, you're going to say, well, no, they're not. I confess one holy Catholic and apostolic church. Or there are many baptisms, or the baptisms of all the various sectarian heterodox is the one baptism. You'll say, no, I confess one baptism for the mission of sins. You see, if you know the basics of the faith, you can point, you can point, uh, you can discern, rather, when somebody is in gross error and to flee them. It's not that hard, actually, if you know the faith. Um, so if you're confused, go and find out from somebody who's very trustworthy. Usually the monasteries are the best place for that. Not always. Some monasteries are sick as well. But as a rule, that's the history of the world. churches that we see in the monastic life. The strict narrow path is followed, and the, and therefore they have the greater discernment. But these gross gross errors today, wokeism, LGBTQ, all this stuff is really basic and gross errors. Okay, so if some bishop or some priest is teaching any of this garbage, flee. It's not that hard. Flee. You don't doesn't mean you flee the church. Doesn't mean you free all your Orthodox brothers and sisters. You don't go to him for guidance. That's what that means, right? Now the solutions are going to be basically one of two. Maybe there's a third one that I'm not thinking about. I'm happy to entertain your thoughts. You find a spiritual experienced guide, even if that means he's far away. If you're in Australia, you're in America, you're in uh, South Africa. India, wherever we are, look, the reality is they're going to be few and far between. Experienced spiritual guides are not going to be that many today. So you find, you go far away to a monastery or whatever it is, you find the spirits. It might be an hour away. It might be 10 hours away. I don't know where you are. You might be in Idaho and, you know, have to come down to California or Arizona or something. I don't know, right? You have to discern all that. But in any case, you find the spiritual guide even as far away 
and you have a confessor nearby where you go to confession regularly. And of course, again, the presupposition is that they're orthodox, but that's one solution. Don't, you should not think, I have to have St. Seraphim of Serov today. Where is St. Seraphim of Serov? I must find him. Do not think like that. That's not necessary. You are not that advanced in the spiritual life. You don't need St. Seraphim of Serov to guide you. You need somebody who's humble, a priest who's struggling, right? Who's up the ladder several rungs from you. He's been in the church 10, 15, 20 years. He's got enough experience. He has not just been a theological school, because that's not a guarantee anymore, but he's actually been around the spiritual life and around other spiritual fathers. And he's clearly orthodox. He's following the narrow path. That's what we need. We need somebody who's clearly orthodox, who's got more experience than we do, and we need to start where we are and then make progress. Now, there also is another option. If you can't even find that experienced guide anywhere near you, an hour away or 10 hours away or three hours by airplane or whatever it is that you would go two, three, four times a year, whatever you could do. If you can't find that person, then you confess regularly to your confessor in your parish. You read the Holy Fathers. And then you only go to an experienced guide for big decisions, right? You might have to get in an airplane. You might have to get in a, take a very long trip in the car. I don't know. But, but you do whatever you can do. You do whatever you can do in the conditions you are, and you show your goodwill. You pray fervently. You do not forego confession until you're ready for a spiritual father. No, you confess is not necessary. You can go to a confessor, a priest who you don't have as a spiritual father, but you should go on a regular basis to confession. Uh, and until you get one spiritual father, he'll be a guide. You do one of these two solutions uh, or the second solution. And then hopefully you can find a spiritual guide that you can go to at least a few times a year. This is the reality of the Western world for the most part. And we have to be, be humble enough to realize that this is what it, we're at. Now, hopefully with time, God will raise up more and more, more experienced spiritual fathers. There are a lot of young, zealous men who've become priests who are trying to live the narrow path and they're getting, gaining experience. And we can go to those who are also in obedience to those spiritual fathers, the few, uh, and it's kind of a trickle down effect, right? So um, yeah, hopefully that's helped you practically a little bit. Hopefully I didn't confuse you. I feel like I did a little confuse you. Hopefully not. Um, all right, let's talk a little bit about fasting. Let's talk a little about fasting. Yeah, please uh, submit your questions. Um, I don't, let's see, we only have four questions in the box. Uh, but uh, so now we're going to be looking at fasting for just one little minute here. And first and foremost, we fast out of love for Christ. Is that why you're fasting? Be honest. Are you fasting out of love for Christ? Do you forego the meat and the dairy and the oil and the wine on Wednesdays and Fridays during the great fast, during the apostles fast, during the Dormition fast, during the Christmas fast, all the various fasts that we have, during the various other days where we have fast? Do you do that for Christ? Do you do it out of love for Christ? You need to do it out of love for Christ. You need to think today, I really want to go deeper in my fast, I want to eat not just those kind of foods that are blessed, but less of the food generally. I want to go more simple in my life. 
And this is all for the love of Christ, right? So we do it out of love for Christ and in Christ. And then we do, we go through fasting because we're in obedience to God, right? He says, if you keep my commandments, then you love me, he says. So insofar as you're obedient, you keep his commandments, you keep the fast, then you can say, I'm beginning to love Christ. It's just like in the prayer we're going to talk about in a minute, you know, and, and all the struggle for virtue. A lot of times you don't want to do it. You're lazy, you're tired. That's when you show how much love you have for Christ. So you do it out of love for Christ. You do it because you need to be trained in obedience, and that's exactly the path of salvation. He was obedient under the cross and a death on the cross. We lost salvation and paradise because of disobedience, right? The absolute key to the spiritual life, the monastic life, is obedience. Humbling ourselves and saying, let it be blessed, Lord. Let it be blessed, Yeroda. Let it be blessed, Father. Let it be blessed, wife, husband, children. Let it be blessed. Not my will, but thy will. So that's why we fast. We're constantly training ourselves out of love for Christ in obedience that we can then solidify and establish ourselves again in a constant relationship with God. If you're not observing the fast on Wednesday and Friday and you're saying, well, I'm going to eat a little oil, a little wine, a little beer, whatever it is, you know, and, and you might say, well, I don't even do that, Father. I don't fast from those things. Okay, well, you and your spiritual father figure it out. I'm not saying it, but the fast of the church normally, and there are exceptions, and that's fine. If you got a blessing, you got exceptions. But the normal fast that we're all struggling to keep, in case some beginners here don't know it, that whenever we have a full fast, there's no exceptions, which is the norm, normal fast, right? Unless there's a feast day or something like that. We're fasting from all meat products, all dairy products, all wine, oil, oil meaning any kind of oil, not just olive oil. We're not putting MCT oil or something on our food. We're eating very simply, even uncooked, healthy, uncooked food. And that includes when we don't eat oil, we don't eat seafood. A lot of people have this mistaken idea what when we can eat, well, we'll eat shrimp without oil. No, no, no. Shrimp is in the category of oil. You give up oil, you give up shrimp, you give up uh, calamari or whatever it is. That's seafood, right? So that's, that's the normal, quote unquote, strict fast. That's the normal fast. Now, there are days when we do eat oil on fast days. And it says oil allowed, fish allowed, right? That's fine. Then you can eat it. Or if your spiritual father says, no, you need to eat oil for whatever sickness you have or whatever it is, that's fine. But if you're not struggling to keep the fast of the church, you're not learning obedience, you're not going deeper in love, and you won't necessarily make a lot of progress in the, in the prayer life either. Because the prayer life presupposes obedience to Christ and his commandments. He doesn't say if you fast. He says when you fast. There is no if. There is no if. Also, there is the fast before communion. Many, many spiritual fathers give a fast before communion. Not all spiritual fathers. The Russian tradition generally does not have this. But in the Mount Athos, Athenite Greek tradition, you definitely find this. That on, if you're going to commune on Sunday or you're going to commune on Tuesday, Monday or Saturday, whatever the day is before you commune, you fast. Not entirely from oil. You, you can eat oil Depending on the spiritual father, he might say eat oil up until dinner or up until lunch. 
or maybe even up until, I don't know, 11 o'clock, whatever. It depends on the spiritual father. But generally, there is a fast, and we oil part or most of the day. And then in the evening, a lot of spiritual fathers in the athletic tradition will say no oil, just simple food in the evening. And that is not a canon of the church. It's not a teaching of the ecumenical councils. It's a practice that has been learned in the monasteries that that they've seen there's spiritual benefits to this, and they give it to their spiritual children to practice. It's like the fast of the ascetics in the desert. When the, in the, when you read in the sayings of the fathers that they did away with their fast, it's their personal fast, not the church fast. Another aspect of this, people go to other people's houses, and they say, well, they put food out in front of me. I had to eat. No, you didn't. That's not true. That's not pharisaical. There are people who teach this. It's wrong. That's not the case when it's the obedience to God in the fast, Wednesday and Friday, etc. That is a question of obedience. It's not a question of personal piety or something like this. It's, it's a question of being obedient to Christ. And we don't break that. We don't normally go to people's houses on days when we think they might feed us food, meat or, or dairy. You, do, you avoid those places on days which are fast days. And if you go and they say, here, come and eat, you say, forgive me, I love you, but I'm not going to be able to eat that food today because I'm an Orthodox Christian and we fast today. Now, if you did a personal fast, on a, let's say there's some Christians who fast on Mondays as well as Wednesday and Friday, and that is an imitation of the ascetics who also are imitating the angels because the day of Monday is the day we commemorate the angels on the daily commemorations. And so to imitate the angels, uh, some uh, uh, elders and ascetics, well, all, a lot of them on Manathos, if not all of them, but the vast majority of them, they fast on Monday as well, just like on Wednesday and Friday. So there's some Christians who want to imitate them, and they do that. Now, if I came to their house on a Wednesday, on a Monday, and I wasn't fasting, that would be, and they said, no, 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 we can't, you know, we can't break our fast or something. That would be, I think, a mistake. I think it would be an error on their part. Now, if, if I was their friend and we were, you know, we, we knew they fasted on Monday. Of course, I would say, you know, it's not a problem. But if you're, you have a guest who comes out of nowhere, like they did in the desert, and, and you're going you're gonna to break that fast for the sake of your, bre- of your brethren, right? Uh, if it's a personal fast, that is exceptional today. Most people don't have those kind of fasts. They're not like the, the desert fathers who are fasting all the time, right? So this is really not applicable. We're trying to be obedient to God. And so those are the things that are going to make life in a non-Orthodox, non-pious environment difficult. It is going to be difficult, but that's okay. That's okay. It's good. It's good to be difficult. So we enter into the spiritual meaning of the fast and not just the physical externals, right? If you're just doing it and you're like, oh, man, I really want to eat, but I guess I can't eat. And I'm really angry at these people and I'm angry all day. And we keep, then we're not really entering into the spirit of the fast. Obviously, it's not just about food. It's about training ourselves in virtue. And therefore, it's about abstaining from sin, fasting from sin, being freed from the slavery to the stomach, but also via the stomach to sin generally. Stomach is so central to our daily life. We can't live without food. So, this is the area where we train ourselves most, especially not as an end in itself, but as a means to then fast and abstain and be free from sin in all its forms. 
If you are angry at your mother or you're complaining about your sister or you're constantly bothered by your brother or whatever it is, right? And you're constantly angry or constantly jealous or constantly, you know, tempted. Well, you need to come and enter into the arena of the virtues in order to be freed from all of that. That's the, that's the end goal. End goal is not to keep the law. The end goal is not to be a good faster. The end goal is not to say, bravo, you were very religious. The end goal is to be freed from those, that anger and that impatience and that anxiety and to be a free human being. The church is, that's what it's all about. The church is about freeing you from the slavery to the passions. So I think we've already said this, but I'll say it quickly just in case, make sure we cover our basis. There are practical guidelines. There's the ideal that we get from the monasteries. All the rules of fasting essentially come from St. Sava's monastery and maybe the studio in, in Constantinople. Uh, that's where we get our typicon. Uh, but uh, so they, they would, on Wednesday and Friday and all the fast of the year, they would eat one meal, one meal a day. Sounds like intermittent fasting, by the way. It's all the, you know, the fad now, the the the, uh, the trendy, it's trendy to be intermittent fasting, you know, fasting 16, 18 hours and then eating only four or six. Well, that's pretty much what the fathers have been doing for 2,000 years. That's what they do. They, they fast and they eat one meal after the ninth hour. That means 3 p.m. And that's the ideal, right? Do most Orthodox Christians today only eat one meal on Wednesdays and Fridays? Probably not. Not the ones I know. I don't even do that. I drink coffee in the morning on Wednesday and Friday, and I like a little something before the coffee. So I'm not preaching like I'm some great ascetic. I'm not, and it's unfortunate. But uh, I need to go deeper. But let's let's be uh, let's keep that in mind that that is the ideal. That's where it comes from. One meal a day uh, is what we have coming down to us. Uh, and let's try to do as close we can to that. Can we get down to two meals a day from twelve? And then four or something like that. I mean, you know, and you work with your spiritual father and figure out what you can do. The idea is to increase it incrementally until you get to the point where you are dispassionate toward food. You're not a slave anymore. You're not dying for the meal or whatever, right? That's the goal. And you're free and you're obedient and you're, uh, you're primed to pray all the time, right? God is... Uh, leading you to that all the time. That's the goal, right? Fasting and prayer go hand in hand. Also, we fast before communion, like I said, in many places, not all places. Also, again, as I told you, fasting from wine and uh, oil means fasting from uh, seafood. Now, let's talk about a prayer rule. And I know there's some questions about prayer corners. We'll talk about that in a minute. Uh, Mary, hang on, and we'll answer that question. But it's really important that we acquire a prayer rule. Now, obviously, we ask our spiritual father for that prayer rule. A typical starter prayer rule, in my experience, and this might not, might not be universal, I'm sure it's not, but in my experience, a starter prayer rule might be something like either, if it's it could be any of the three that I'm going to tell you, you could be, uh, your say, your morning prayers, of course, the Trisagium prayers, the morning prayers, the 50th Psalm, you read the the uh, creed the symbol of faith you read some prayers from the holy fathers maybe in your prayer book um 
maybe some more chanting of Trapari. And it, I've heard different things, right? That, that's, uh, that's manageable. You could sit down and read before you pray and be inspired. You could read a little bit from the life of a saint. You could read a little bit from some very spiritual book like, I don't know, the Evergetinos or something like that. And then you begin your morning prayers. And then at the end, ideally, would be to say the Jesus prayer. Now, if you're just beginning the Jesus prayer and you don't have a spiritual guide, can you do it? People ask me, I don't have a spiritual father. Can I say the Jesus prayer? And my response is yes, but very limited, limited, and not in the very advanced stages, obviously, like the fathers do on Athos, where they do the breathing exercises and all the rest. That needs a spiritual guide. But can you say the Jesus prayer? Of course you can say the Jesus prayer because we're supposed to be saying the Jesus prayer throughout the whole day. We That's our goal, right? To say the Jesus prayer throughout the day, not not to attention to draw attention to ourselves quite the opposite we should make it so it they nobody even can tell if possible it's a very 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 discreet you don't want anybody we don't walk, walk around with our prayer rope hanging from our hand i'm praying the jesus prayer no that's delusional uh, if you have the prayer rope in church that's fine we we're all praying in church there's any delusion like why why wouldn't we be praying in church but that's another question we could talk about that how and when to do it in church but Throughout the day, we should be saying the Jesus prayer as as just a, you know, default. You know, when we're sitting there waiting for something, we're in the car, uh, you know, we're not listening to a lecture or a sermon or whatever it is. We're not talking to anybody. There it goes. Start the Jesus prayer. Lord Jesus Christ, have mercy on me. Lord Jesus Christ, have mercy on me. And you can change it up a little bit. You can, when you're doing it throughout the day, you might, you know, once in a while, Lord Jesus Christ, have mercy on my wife. Lord Jesus Christ, enlighten my darkness, whatever. But as a rule in the morning, it is wonderful if we can say the Jesus prayer at just a little bit, at least. Like, let's start. You're just starting off. Start with 100. Um, I don't have a 100 next to me, but a 100 prayer rope. And you do one of those. Lord Jesus Christ, have mercy on me. And then you do 33, one third of that. Or you have your little 33 prayer rope, like the one I just showed you. That is 33. And you do... Save us. That is not hard. It doesn't take that long. And it's not going to get you into some kind of delusion. I don't know. There are people out there who think you're going to fall in delusion if you say Jesus. I don't know where they get this. That's clearly not the case with so limited uh, the Jesus prayer. Now, if you again, if you were going deeply into all kinds of practices like they do in the monastery where they're praying for hours on end. Yes, that needs a spiritual guide. You have many questions. That's not blessed. But simple little prayer, the Jesus prayer is not a problem as far as I'm concerned. But, you know, talk to your spiritual father about it. But that's my my uh, take on it. Now, what do you do if your priest or spiritual father says, don't pray the Jesus prayer? I've actually heard this and I was shocked. And I, I would say that there's no basis for that in the Orthodox tradition. I don't know where they're coming from on that. So I can't tell people not to listen to that because there's no basis in the Orthodox tradition and teaching for that. So I would say, don't listen to them. <laughs> I hate to say that that's terrible, but on what basis they can't just tell you anything. What are they, on what basis I would say, go to them and say, on what basis are you telling me not to say the Jesus prayer? Like where, how show me, I can't, I've been told that that's not Orthodox. Like why would I not say the Jesus prayer? Number four, a rule of prayer means a rule of prayer. In other words, you keep it. Do not allow it to fall away. Don't say that. Don't start the rule and then end up, oh, one day here and then I stop. One day I stop. One day I go on. Three days I stop. 
Not a good idea. You've got to keep it. You've got to get up early, ideally. If your day starts at 6 with everybody else, everybody else is getting up at 6, you get up at 5. You see, go you know, wash your face, do your teeth, whatever you're going to do. Go sit in a nice, quiet place in front of icons, ideally, and a, and a candelia, a oil lamp, and do your prayer rule and do your Jesus prayer and read your life of the saint, your scriptural passages before the bustle of the day starts. If that's your foundation for the day, you're going to be much, much better off. You've got to keep that daily, daily. And if you miss it, try to make it up. If you don't make it up, go to confession and say, Lord, have mercy, I, I did not make it up. And you say, I'm, unfortunately, I missed a lot or three days or 10 days, whatever it is. But do not become lax. It is a disaster waiting to happen. And so keep it daily. Form the habits and when you don't want to pray, that's when you show your love and you pray. And that's when it matters. All right. So that's it for tonight. I'm not going to go any further. You've got some books here on the left that are worth acquiring. Uh, the Jesus Prayer from Those Living in the World on the Jesus Prayer, uh, Prayer of Jesus by St. Ignatius Branchininoff. And then The Way of the Pilgrim, of course, uh, by uh, from St. Anthony's uh, Monastery, if you don't have that. <laughs> Oh, my God.